Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, before we start the show today, I want to tell you about something brand new we're launching with our friends at Apple Podcasts called The Ongoing History of New Music Unlimited. For $3.49 a month, $3.49, which is less than the price of your morning coffee, you can now get access to the full archive of our shows ad-free. Plus, you'll get brand new episodes two days early and special bonus episodes. It's Ongoing History Unlimited, and it's available right now only on Apple Podcasts. Artists make arts because they have to. There's something in their hearts that forces them to turn what they feel inside into something the rest of us can see and hear and feel ourselves. It's supposed to be a pure thing. The pursuit of beauty for beauty's sake. Undistilled human emotion designed to create a reaction, to spread a profound message, to make the universe a better and wiser and more joyful place. Yeah, nice thoughts. But the universe being what it is, things don't work out that way. Artists need to eat. They need to pay the rent. They need tools and supplies. They may need to travel from place to place, and they may need help from others, people that demand payment. In other words, artists need money to survive like anyone else. They may find that money from donations. Maybe they have a patron. But in the modern world, what they really need is a regular income. It used to be that musicians would play gigs and sell their music to the public. If they got it on the radio, then that was an additional revenue stream. Then came selling t-shirts and merchandise. But around the turn of the 21st century, things began to change. Economic reality surrounding the evolution of the music business forced musicians to look at different ways of bringing in income. What was once considered compromising artistic principles and destruction of the integrity of music by prostituting yourself to soulless multinational corporations and the like started to look like not just a pretty good idea, but a very necessary one. Oh, sure, you can reject the evil lure of money and maintain the purity of your music, but that's not going to take you very far if you're homeless and hungry. And after a while, you realize that the shame levied upon you for finding new ways of making a living is actually the result of the audience's idea of artistic purity, not yours. The audience expects you to do what they believe is the pure thing for their entertainment. These are complicated concepts. Let's proceed with part two, the concept of selling out. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. I can't blame, likes it. 
Juliana Hatfield and Sellout from 1997. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the second half of a program that looks at the concept of selling out in the 21st century, at least when it comes to musicians. On part one, we went through the early history of so-called sellouts, situations where critics and fans accused artists of taking money and running at the expense of their art. And each step along the way, we looked at the backstory and what really happened. In each instance, there were some pretty compelling reasons, or at least very important extenuating circumstances, for these examples. But before we go any further, let's review the four definitions of sellout that we're using for our purposes. Definition one. A band sells out when they sign to a major label. They were cool when they were an indie, but now that they're signed to a major multinational music corporation, forget them. They're in with the man now, part of the machine, and will ultimately be turned into something bland for the mainstream. Definition two. A band becomes a sellout when they allow their music to be influenced by their pursuit of riches. They're only in it for the money, and they will do whatever it takes to make as much money as possible. What form that takes is fungible, but you know it when you see it. Definition number three. And this is a bit of a weird one. A band is a sellout when they become too popular for the comfort level of some fans. They sell too many records and too many concert tickets and appear on too many magazine covers. Oh, yeah, sure, they're good, but they're just too famous now. And you don't like the new fans because you feel that they've stolen your band and that they like your band just because it's trendy to like your band. The rot has spoiled everything for you. For the most part, we're going to ignore this point because it's much more of an emotional issue loaded with subjectivity. And finally, definition number four. This has to be the dodgiest. A band has sold out when they allow their music to be used to sell a product unrelated to the music itself. Letting a song be used, for example, in a commercial to sell something like uh, cars or candy or TVs. Even the use of a song in a poignant scene in an episode of a mainstream TV network show is looked at with derision by some. It's just filthy lucre. Let's continue with a further discussion of definition four, the use of a song in a TV commercial and the like. For me, the turning point came in 2000 when an agency in Boston called Arnold Worldwide was tasked by a client to help them reach 20-somethings. The client was Volkswagen. Research had shown that people who drove VWs felt that they were a little cooler, a little more underground than people who drove other kinds of cars. The creative brief was simple. We have this new cabriolet model. How do we reach more of these people, these 20-somethings? The project was given to four people at the agency, and it turns out that they were all music nerds. Their concept was a romantic one-minute TV spot entitled Milky Way. It featured four hip young people in a Volkswagen cabrio driving in the countryside on a summer's night. Lovely visuals. But to make it work, the ad needed music. Several songs were tested. Under the Milky Way by the Church, an obvious one, Lament by the Cure, and You, the Night, and the Music by Tones on Tail. But then they stumbled across an obscure 1972 song by a doomed English folk singer who died of an overdose in 1974. The song was Pink Moon by Nick Drake from the album of the same name. After some torturous negotiations with Nick's sister, a deal was struck. Nick was a cult artist at best, so licensing Pink Moon was a cheaper way than, say, using something from, you know, Michael Jackson or even the church. And besides, the indisputable indiness of this song made things all that much cooler. And so the ad was shot, and Pink Moon, this song, was the soundtrack. I saw it written and I saw it say, 
When the Volkswagen ad featuring that song first appeared on TV in 2000, a couple of things happened. First of all, sales of Volkswagen Cabrios jumped. So, mission accomplished there. But the more interesting part of this story, as far as we're concerned, has to do with what happened to the song. The song was selling the car. But the car, specifically the commercial, was also selling the song. As soon as the spot debuted, sales of Nick Drake's music exploded. Sales went up 500% without anyone doing anything. Then the record label got hip. They put a little sticker on the CDs that read, as featured in the VW ad. Sales went from 6,000 copies a year to 74,000, and that's just in the United States. The song was then licensed to other projects, including TV shows and movies, and the money was great. Oh, and there's more. The ad was so successful and so admired in the advertising world that there was a shift to using cool songs by lesser-known artists in TV ads. And many subsequent TV commercials were legitimately regarded as tastemakers. They also boosted sales, and if the artist was still alive, sales of concert tickets and merch. Turns out that getting paid for allowing your music to be heard in a TV commercial was great for promotion. So no wonder artists started approaching their managers saying, Hey, you know, music piracy is killing me right now. What can you do to get my song in a TV commercial? It was the beginning of a whole new strategy, which has since exploded. So, selling out or savvy promotion? That's up to you. But I can tell you that such licensing arrangements have saved many an artist from financial ruin. Here's an example. Apples and Stereo are an indie band from Denver who have been slogging it out since 1992 very highly regarded by the indie community. But they weren't selling a lot of albums. A record was good for maybe 20,000 copies. To supplement things, they toured. And they also took regular jobs when they weren't on the road just to make ends meet. The band played about 100 shows a year. Gigs were worth between $250 and $2,500 to the band. Totaled altogether, they about broke even. T-shirt sales were gravy, but that was only about 100 bucks per show. In the summer of 1999, they faced a situation that is all too familiar to indie bands. Robert Schneider and Hilary Sidney, the two principals in the group, were in a bind. They were both 30. They were both working telemarketing jobs. And Hilary was eight months pregnant with their first child. That would take them off the road for a while, depriving them of a vital source of income. They were worried that they wouldn't be able to afford the $825 a month in rent they were paying. But then a friend called from New York. He worked for an ad agency called Young and Rubicam. I'm working on a campaign for some Sony televisions, he said. They want to use your song Strawberry Fire in a TV commercial, and they're offering $18,000. What do you think? This created an existential crisis. Apples and Stereo had always been committed to the ethos of punk rock. They were purists when it came to their music. And what about their fans who counted on them being that way? But... $18,000 was more money than they could make in a year. Did they dare take the money? Robert and Hillary asked the rest of the band, and there was no hesitation. Take the money, they said. So they did. And that one deal basically rescued a very good indie band from a very tough financial situation. Here's that song. This is Apples and Stereo with Strawberry Fire.
At the same time Apples and Stereo agreed to have their song in a commercial for Sony TVs, similar bands that they really, really admired happened to be doing the same thing. Spiritualized and Stereolab, two more fiercely independent bands, had made deals with, guess who? Volkswagen. Wasn't it cool that big advertisers were drawing attention to them? Wasn't that some kind of legitimacy being laid upon them? Wasn't it better to have the money flowing to groups like these instead of some lame top 40 act? Meanwhile, a new industry was being born. New companies began to appear whose sole purpose was to navigate the legalities of licensing real music from real artists for use in advertising. Their mission was to help companies sell goods and services by attaching meaningful, non-generic music to the commercial. The amount an artist can hope to earn from a licensing deal varies widely. Maybe it's a quick $10,000. Or if the advertiser wants it bad enough, the sky's the limit. We're talking half a million dollars or more for a 20 or 30 second snippet. Here's a song that has earned exponentially more being licensed than it ever did as a standalone release. It was a huge single on its own, but with the TV commercials, Maxwell House Coffee, Allstate Insurance, and a ton more, they made some good coin. When we come back, we'll go deeper to this business of licensing songs for TV commercials. And that will inevitably lead to a discussion of Apple. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hang on. Let's talk about what's involved in a band getting their song in a TV commercial, a TV show, a movie trailer, on a movie soundtrack, or in a video game. Again, an artist will pursue something like this in order to find a replacement for revenue that has been wiped out, crashing physical music sales, inadequate income from touring or streaming, a pandemic, lots of reasons. Licensing your music also gives you a way around the traditional gatekeepers of the music industry record labels, radio, video channels, and so on. Licensing your music can take it straight to the people. You're paid, and your music gets exposure, and maybe good things happen as a result. On part one, we talked about how Moby did this with his Play album. He wasn't getting any love from the regular outlets, so he and his manager licensed everything from the Play record, all 18 songs, which helped the album sell 10 million copies and made Moby a household name. Sting did the same thing. When his song Desert Rose was ignored by radio, he licensed it for a Jaguar commercial. And when that happened, the album, which was called Brand New Day, became his biggest selling solo record ever. Campaigns like this opened the door to thousands of other acts who wanted to try the same thing. The problem was that so many wanted licensing deals and placement opportunities that the prices paid started dropping. 
The big stars with the big songs, think ACDC's Thunderstruck, still brought in big dollars. But indie bands hoping for a leg up saw the amount of money coming their way shrink. But still, they had a chance to make more money than they would have otherwise. It's basically free money. Let's look at how licensing works. A song can be pitched to an advertising agency for use in something that might come up in the future. Or the music people at the agency, the creative directors, might happen to like a band or a song and reach out to them if they feel that there's a possible placement to be had. Same thing for anything to do with TV, movies, and video games. A music supervisor will be in charge of sourcing music for the project. If a musician owns the copyright and the master for a selected song, that can mean big dollars. Usually, though, those two things are shared with a music publisher and a record company. This means that third-party revenue, licensing a song for a movie trailer, for example, has to be split between the artist and whoever else owns pieces of the song. The offer is entertained and scrutinized. Some artists will refuse to let their music be used for certain things. Products uh, promoting meat, for example, anything to do with the military, maybe a beer company. Once things are all sorted, a deal is struck. Unless we're talking about a soundtrack album, the deal is usually for a snippet of the song, 15 seconds, 20, 30, and so on. And then the nature of the snippet has to be agreed upon. How will it be edited to fit into the commercial? How long is the campaign? How many different platforms will it appear on? Only when all of these conditions are settled does the song have permission to be used in whatever the project is. With a little luck and some careful stewardship, a song can bring in millions of dollars for an artist. Take Blur's Song 2, for example. It's been licensed, I don't know how many times, since it came out in 1997. Movie soundtracks, TV commercials, TV shows, video games, sports anthems, the 2012 Summer Olympics in London, the World Cup. It continues to make millions for the band every single year. It's not bad for something that Blur whipped together in the studio in about 15 minutes as kind of a joke. Whatever you think about artists licensing their music for non-musical things, this is the reality. Artists are very, very focused on business issues these days. The whole economy of being a musician has changed from the days when you could earn a living selling records and playing gigs. You need these other sources of revenue. Another wonderful source of revenue is if you can convince the producers of a TV show to use your song as the show's theme. Think The Who and Who Are You, which is heard on every episode of CSI. Remember the show Chuck? The cake song, Short Skirt, Long Jacket? That opened every show. And here's one of the best examples. In 1997, a British group called Alabama 3 released a song that mm, barely did okay as a single. It came and went and then slipped into obscurity. But then producer David Chase heard the song and thought it would be perfect for his new mob series, that had been greenlit by HBO. The series was called The Sopranos. At the time, he was thinking about using different theme songs for every episode, but HBO balked at that. Too expensive, they said. Besides, you want the same opening theme for consistency. So, Chase hunted down Alabama 3 and offered them $40,000 US for the song. They took it, and the rest is history.
The list of artists who have made tons of money by licensing their song to a TV show is very, very long. The Rembrandts and I'll Be There For You from Friends. The Bare Naked Ladies and The Big Bang Theory. The theme for King of the Hill, which is properly called Yahoos and Triangles, is from a band called The Refreshments. They might be giants for Boss of Me for Malcolm in the Middle, Jane's Addiction and Superhero for Entourage. And this trend shows no sign of ending. This would be a good time to segue into one of the most important TV commercial campaigns ever, and that's Apple. Apple's stylish TV commercials go all the way back to the early 1980s, when the Macintosh computer was first unveiled. But it was when the iPod came along that things really took off. And that continued when the iPhone came along. The original campaigns were headed up by Susan Allen Sangat. She's an art director at an agency called Chiat Day. She came up with the idea of showing just silhouettes of people dancing to the music on their devices. The dancers were silhouettes because that eliminated the need of having to find actors who had just the right look. The silhouette shapes and the songs changed from ad to ad. Over the years, Apple commercials have featured the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, Bowie, and Elvis. We've heard Coldplay, Fatboy Slim, and Eminem. They've used Muse, Green Day, and Daft Punk. Bob Marley, The Offspring, Joey Ramone, Talking Heads, Johnny Cash, Grateful Dead, The Cure, Snow Patrol, Jay-Z, Gorillaz, and yes, Moby. Even Paul McCartney, who you remember was so dead against the Nike Revolution campaign back in the 80s, had his music put in Apple commercials. But it's not just big bands who benefited from being in an iPod or iPhone commercial. Feist's career went ballistic when her song 1234 was used in a spot. The Fratellis did better than they had ever dreamed with a song called Flathead when it was used in 2007. Same thing with the Ting Tings. And let's not even talk about Jet and Are You Gonna Be My Girl. Worldwide smash. A lot of bands got exposure that would have otherwise cost them millions of dollars, and they couldn't afford that. The Bird and the Bee, Rhinoceros, Wolf Mother, The Caesars, Crystal Castles. And from what I've been able to understand, and I could be wrong here, but Apple doesn't pay these artists. The understanding is that they will benefit just from the placement. People see that commercial and go, I like it. What song is that? What band is that? I must find out. That happens to me almost every single time I see a new Apple commercial. I'm shazamming things and go, oh, okay, got to follow up on that. What these artists get are two things. A 30-second ad for this music that more or less doubles as a music video. So why spend thousands making a video when video channels don't even show videos anymore and you don't know if it'll ever be discovered on YouTube? Kind of sounds like a no-brainer to me. Here's a trivia question. What was the very first band to have one of their songs in an iPod commercial? For that, we have to go back to the fall of 2001, even before the Silhouette-style campaign started. The answer is a British outfit called Propellerheads. The first iPod commercial featured a track of theirs called Take California. In a moment, we'll tackle the thorny issue of artists selling their song catalogs to big corporations. As the second decade of the 21st century came to an end, an interesting series of business stories began to circulate. Musicians were selling their life's work to large corporations, and these were huge deals. In exchange for turning over the publishing rights to their songs, 
artists were receiving payouts of tens of millions of dollars. In some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars. So what was happening here? The financial world has discovered that there is money to be made in song catalogs. There are about a dozen companies in the game at the moment. Hypnosis, Primary Wave, Round Hill, and Iconic Artists are just a few of them. They're buying up the rights to some of the greatest songs ever written, believing that if they take care of them over time, decades if necessary, these songs will generate nice, regular rates of return through the royalties that they generate. Meanwhile, the artist gets a big check based on a projection of how much their royalties would earn in the future, even after they're dead. The price is set like this. A company determines how much in royalties an artist's song catalog realizes in any given year. Then a multiple is negotiated to determine a final number. So let's say your song catalog earns you $10 million a year. You might then negotiate a multiple of 10x or 15x, meaning that your payout is between $100 million and $150 million. Lovely payday. There are also tax implications. In a territory like the United States, regular royalty income is taxed as if it were a salary. So in other words, you get a royalty check every six months, you're taxed at a high rate, 40, maybe 50%. But if you take all that money at once, this is considered to be capital gains, meaning that you might be taxed at 20%. So a no-brainer, right? Makes a lot of sense if you're an artist in your 60s or 70s. Bruce Springsteen sold his music for 550 million US dollars. Bob Dylan, about 300 million dollars. Tina Turner, Barry Manilow, Neil Young, four-fifths of Fleetwood Mac, dozens have already taken these offers. Some of them just want to cash out and enjoy their remaining years. Others need the money. Others were worried that COVID would prevent them from ever touring again, which is their main source of revenue. Still others haven't been able to come to grips with the fact that they just don't sell records anymore. Nobody's buying records. It's all about streaming. Now, this might have the scent of a payday loan or a reverse mortgage, but it's not like that at all. The money these artists receive is money that would be coming to them anyway if they were willing or able to wait. But this can also be attractive for younger artists, too. You no longer see any new money from your older songs, but you can still earn money on any new music you might release. Plus, you've now got this giant whack of cash to do with whatever you please. You can proceed with your music career without any kind of financial worry. You don't have to worry if that next album is a hit or a flop. You can get into philanthropy. You can make non-musical investments. You can get into activism. And you can put your estate in order for your family and heirs, even though those considerations may be far in the future. Here's a short list of contemporary acts who have sold some or all of their back catalog for a big chunk of money. Imagine Dragons, Disturbed, Beyonce, Justin Timberlake, Kendrick Lamar, Tom DeLonge of Blink-182, Rihanna, Korn, The Chainsmokers, Dave Navarro of Jane's Addiction, Mark Ronson, and The Killers. The Killers sold off everything they created prior to 2020 to a company called Eldridge Industries. The price wasn't made public, but given how popular The Killers continue to be, it had to have been around 100 million, 150 million. Before we wrap up, we need to note the differences in attitude about selling out across various genres. Accusing a serious jazz player of selling out is akin to shooting them in the face. 
Jazz is considered to be a very serious art form by many fans, and nothing should corrupt the pursuit of whatever jazz seeks to achieve. While some rock fans have adjusted to the new realities when it comes to the economics of the music business, there are still those, especially among punks and certain segments of the indie world, that look at profiting from music as wrong. Money compromises things. It destroys ideals and principles. The relationship with the music is no longer pure for the artist or the fan. The values the artist had shared with the fan were betrayed. And because of this influx of cash, the audience might feel that the distance between them and the artist has grown. Fans can take a lot of heat from this righteous vitriol. And it's hard to explain to fans that, yeah, I I may be a well-known musician, but I really do need the money. How much do you think I make as a working indie musician in the 21st century? Now let's look at the hip-hop community. While so much of the rock and jazz worlds are worried about being perceived as selling out, large swaths of hip-hop celebrate cashing in. Wealth and success and conspicuous consumption are admired and envied. The idea of making money and lots of it is part of the appeal. Somewhere along the line, there's a very interesting PhD dissertation to be written about this divide. Being a musician costs money. It's got to come from somewhere, whether it be from the sales and streaming of music, a record label, a patron, crowdfunding, merchandise sales, or any of a half dozen other sources. Fans who have this romantic notion of the starving artist being a pure and noble thing probably have never tried being one. Maybe you can do it for a while, but when you get older, that way of living doesn't have a lot of appeal. Art and commerce have always been intermingled. But today, that coexistence is just that much more obvious, probably because A, it's, well, you see it everywhere, and B, we're much more aware of how the world works. Maybe we can look at things this way. When we hear music used in an ad or a TV show, we shouldn't think that that song is being used to sell a good or service. Try to look at it as acknowledgement of how music fits into other aspects of our lives. Yeah, I know that might not work, but until someone can come up with a better way of ensuring that musicians are properly compensated, this is pretty good. It's probably the best we can do, if it bothers you at all. Hundreds of ongoing history shows are available as podcasts. Just pick your favorite platform and download as many as you'd like. If you want to reach me about anything, I can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. There's my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com, which is updated with music news and information every day. Get the free newsletter. And all email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 